Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Quest. And this is our first episode. Which means that it's syllabus day for all you. Yes. Today we are going to introduce what this podcast is about. We are going to ask the question, what is a ghost? What are ghosts? What are frogs? And we are going to talk about some foundational theories that will guide us in the ensuing episodes. But before we get into the content, you probably want to know who we are. So uh, let's start with some self-introductions. Who are you? Yeah, this voice coming to you from beyond the pale. I am Quest. My pronouns are he, him, his. I have a bachelor's in history of art and visual culture and in theater arts, double major. And I also have a master's in theater arts. And you are? This disembodied voice belongs to Annabelle. And I am a poet, an artist, and a high school teacher. Um, English, to be precise. Um, And that's because I got my bachelor's degree in English literature. And I recently got my master's in creative writing. Mazel tov. Thank you. So Quest, what are your credentials to talk about ghosts in particular? I know your focus in academia has been theater and arts. So so where did, where does ghosts come into all of this? That is a great question. So I've been into the spooky things ever since I was a little kid. Um I've been obsessed with Halloween, and I collected Halloween books when I was little. I have been obsessed with mythology and monsters for as long as I could read. Um, But specifically with, like, an academic interest, um, there became a joke in the theater arts department at my university that I wouldn't direct a play if it didn't have two things in it, and those were ghosts and lesbians. (laughs) Um, So... When it came time for my master's, the show that I proposed to direct was called Lion in the Streets by Judith Thompson. Mm -hmm. And for my thesis, I wrote about the process of directing that play with a focus on its representation of trauma through its ghost main character. Um, And it was a lot about the questions of visibility and scopability, um, uh, present and absent wow, of presence and absence and how we work through the difficult things that haunt us to this day. So I've done a lot of thinking about ghosts and how they work. I also TA'd a class about monsters um, and that taking that class as an undergrad really just took this thing that I always loved, and then focused it into an actual academic pursuit. Um, And now I turn the question to you. What does an English teacher know about ghosts? Um, Well, I should tell you that I've made some pretty incredible PowerPoints over the past couple of years on Hamlet, which uh, we can look at later. Um, But I guess... uh, I had a fairly similar experience to you in that when I got to college, um, I took a lot of 
inspiration from things that I already loved, and I, I found ways to make that part of my research. So when I was in undergrad, I did a paper on Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms, and a major focus of that paper was um, also on how traumas from um, the personal past, but also the historic past, um, inform the gothic setting of that story, um, and also just how space, and uh, particularly third space, um, this idea of this other, it's, it's in the title of the book as well, right? Other Voices, Other Rooms. This other space allows for um, supernatural traumas to come to the surface. Um, so I guess you could say the American Gothic, the Southern Gothic was a major part of my literary studies. Um, I guess now's a good time to mention that I have known you for most of my life, right? We've known each other since second grade. Um, and I, I think it's, it's no coincidence that we both ended up loving the spooky <laughs> aspects of of the arts, you know, Halloween was definitely the major holiday yeah. of, of my childhood. Right. We went trick-or-treating together as soon as our parents would allow us to, yeah. like, not go to our respective neighborhoods. Yeah. And, and, and so I think the fun thing about this podcast is we kind of lost touch um, throughout college, but when we reconnected we found out that we were pretty much doing the same research in different areas and we had the same preoccupations in our academic pursuits and the the connection was ghosts yeah. right uh so i think that's a major inspiration for me and for us in creating this podcast hi editing annabelle here i just had to interject because i can't believe i left out my thesis that I've been working on for the last almost three years. It's called Spectre, Spectator, A Ghost Walk, and it's a collection of lyric poems about historic and contemporary California houses and the histories in which we participate when we cross domestic thresholds. So some of the questions I was trying to answer were, what spirits dwell in the everyday? What is the nature of the ghosts we ourselves are shaping and will one day leave behind? I was working with spirits of California through time, space, memory, and lyrical fragments. So I thought I should mention that. Seems important. Okay, back to the podcast. And so I think it's time we clue everybody in on what specifically a ghost is and start yeah. trying to define that term. So I have a quote. Um, this is from a kind of more prose piece than academic. Um, this is from To Be Haunted by Jesse Lynn McMains. I think ghost means more than one thing. A ghost can be the spirit of a dead person, but I think more often it's a memory, a psychic energy that attaches itself to a person, place, or thing. And the more traumatic or intense the memory was, the more likely it is to leave a residue. In this way, you can be haunted by a person who is still alive. You can be hounded by a memory that replays itself over and over, like a psychic tape loop. I love this quote, and I love how it 
has its roots in a certain viewpoint on ghosts, you know, that trauma is involved, but it really leaves space for different interpretations. And what I really love is that it focuses on the experiential nature of ghosts and how important our emotions are in experiencing ghosts. And it it shows how the phenomenon is really so different for everyone. And to me, what this podcast is all about is looking into that experience and how people express it. The arts and humanities are really all about the human experience and the ways in which we express that experience. And clearly, ghosts are a part of that. So I think this quote does a great job of showing the wide variety of ways people experience ghosts. I agree with you. And I think that like what's really great about McMains is what she's saying is, is how broad and undefined a ghost can be because there is such a wide variety. We're not trying to pin down ghosts through their ectoplasmic membranes. We're not trying to figure out the pseudoscientific exactitudes of one versus another and explain something away as swamp gas but decide what is a genuine haunting. That's not our angle. And I think that what McMains is talking about really speaks to that, that there can be a wide range of what ghosts are and all are equally ghosts. Mm -hmm. And ghosts have been found in the cultures and the myths of so many different societies throughout time all across the globe um perhaps not every single culture but a huge number of them yeah so we will not be collecting any ectoplasm on this podcast um but what we are interested not intentionally at least (laughs) yeah knock on wood no ectoplasm here Um, But we are interested in the experiences of people in relation to what we call ghosts and how they record and share those experiences in arts and culture, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little about the history of ghosts. We're going to try for the most, like, cross-cultural throughout the podcast. This definition is going to be a little bit Western-biased just due to the resources that we have available to us and the biases of a lot of research in general um but we can go back in ancient cultures uh, babylonian greek even early christian um ghosts are often conflated with demons and other evil spirits so that which is coming from a dead person may not really matter to them if it's different from an unlucky spirit who just is you know, uh, striking your cows down because that's what its deal is. That doesn't matter if that's different from Aunt Maureen (laughs) who passed a week ago. Right. Um, And then in other cultures, in some periods of China, uh, the line between what is a ghost and what is a god might be blurred. So um, when we go further back, basically, our current contemporary conception of what a ghost is is not going to be completely applicable, um, but we also see the first inklings of that. And then that can be found in the first 
epic poetry with the epic of gilgamesh with the odyssey both of those are some of the oldest works of literature that we have and each of those tales has ghosts in points and then we go down go down <laughs> then we um go forward into the middle ages with chaucer and he has ghosts there and even forward to shakespeare with um hamlet being really a pretty important cultural touchstone when it comes to the modern conception of a ghost and what we see it as today we can definitely see kind of um becoming concrete so to speak in that period for the first time yeah and although it is a a mystery um, of a ghost in Hamlet. It's also an example of Christian influence on ghosts and the fact that that is a prototype for a lot of ideas we have about ghosts in Western cultures today um, speaks a lot to the Christian, particularly Catholic, influence on our ideas about ghosts. Um, and we're going to talk later about fears versus comforts that people find in ghosts. And I think that we will find that a lot of the fears um, tend to come from this idea that, you know, your spirit is supposed to go to a certain place when you die. And if it doesn't go there, uh-oh, not good, <laughs> right? Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. Uh-oh, remember me. Remember. So fast forward to the 19th and 20th centuries, where we have the rise of rationalism, and people start using science to investigate and sometimes even justify the beliefs that they have about the supernatural, and in particular, ghosts. Um, we have things like seances and spiritualism. And just as we have some people rationalizing their beliefs and saying, look at all of the science that proves that ghosts are real, we also have skeptics trying to debunk those quote-unquote scientists. Um, and this is another era where we get a lot of tropes and prototypes for ghost hunting, for um, what a spirit desires or what a spirit is here to do. And this idea of ghosts and the possibility of talking to the dead really pervades the culture. Um, everything from magazines to plays to um, scientific journals. There's video an games. Video, there's an obsession with ghosts in America and Europe from this point forward. Well, and also I think um, you were talking about tropes that got established in that period. We can also talk about the way that skepticism has also brought the idea of unmasking the ghost, proving the ghost isn't there. And that's just as much a mainstay of ghost culture as is the belief in the ghost. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and if we're going to talk about tropes, I think now's a great time to talk about the different types of ghosts um 
that exist or maybe don't yeah and we're not going to worry about drawing hard lines between one type and another but we do think that it's important to have a, an understanding of the general differences um as they've been drawn in cultural studies mm -hmm. so ghost as we use it has a couple different synonyms it could be a phantom apparition specter Often we use spirit, though spirit also can connect to more religious connotations, or a spirit can tie to the idea of genius loci from Roman mythology or kami from Shinto, where the spirit is coming not necessarily from a deceased person, but it is more an excess of life force or a deity residing over or presiding over some animal place concept what have you yeah i think that the idea that a ghost is not a human spirit or doesn't have to be a human spirit um is really common throughout the world um and that fear of ghosts that are not human definitely comes from our christian uh knowledge of what a ghost is supposed to be um because if you are thinking about a Christian ghost, if it is a human being, it's a soul that has left a body and has come back, not only is there a lot of anxiety around that soul not going where it's supposed to go, but there's also anxiety around that spirit not being human, because if it's not human, it's a demon, <laughs> right? Um, so I think it is important to make that distinction uh, between cultures or perspectives that see ghosts as either neutral or belonging to almost any um, type of consciousness um, versus sort of that scary, you know, is it human? Is it not? Is it a demon? Sort of thing that we have stuck to us in the west right there's definitely a lot of places where ghost just kind of is tied to the non-human realm the fey realm as you might call it in a more western understanding mm -hmm. um but also i think that your mention of christian ideology leads perfectly into like the difference between a ghost and a soul mm -hmm. this is a very silly definition but you can kind of think of it that a soul is a ghost that's still intact that when your spirit is still within your living body, and your living body is alive due to reasons that Christianity and dominant cultural thought is okay with, that's fine. And as soon as you die, and now this thing, this life force, uh, this spirit, this religious spirituality continues beyond your natural limits and doesn't go to heaven or hell that's a problem and that's a ghost and that is a ghost Ooh. so soul becomes ghost when soul leaves body but gets stuck amongst us in in this realm i'm actually having my ghost surgery next week i was gonna ask if you could come with me oh i was gonna get a spirit retrieval next soul soul retrieval that's what they call it i was gonna get a soul retrieval next week maybe we can drive each other to those appointments we can astral project. Cute. Um, there are also a couple of ghosts that kind of break our general understanding of what a ghost is. In Scottish folklore, we have what's called a wraith or a fetch. 
Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Which is the ghost that appears of a still living person, often a person who is currently in the process of dying. Mm. Um, so you might see a vision of them while they are still alive, and often that's like a portent of their passing, which if we think about Scottish folklore, like banshees, that's not uncommon in that area of the world. And then also there's revenants, which is where the ghost might still have physical, bodily, corporeal properties. Um, some people try to def define Beetlejuice as a revenant. Um, I don't know. We can get into that someday. Mm -hmm. But there is also a difference between then a revenant and what I like to think of as like the ravenous undead, the vampire, the zombie, where this thing rises and now must feed. The revenant and the ghost typically do not need any sustenance. I'm not hungry. So now that we have an idea of what the word ghost can mean, let's take a little etymological detour and learn about the origins of this word. Um, it's got some interesting origins. Yeah, and they definitely, we'll tease them out, but they definitely show things about the concept. Yes. So the word ghost as we know it is derived from a Teutonic word, which means fury or anger. And the word ghost then was used up until the early modern period to refer to the life force. And that could be the life force in or not in a living body. So a ghost was basically the same as soul, as we've kind of talked about. Um, the Latin root word spiritus, which then becomes spirit, originally just meant breath or wind, but when the Bible was translated into Middle English, the word that they chose to use was Holy Ghost. And that's where we start to see these ideas starting to blend together, spirit and ghost and emotions and wind and life force. And you can see how all those things come together. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder about the, you know, the fury of the, the living person, like how that um, anger or fury started to translate into um, this idea of the very force of life itself. Um, but it's also interesting, that connection between breath and wind and spirit. I mean, so many uh, cultures have this idea of the breath and the spirit being linked. Um, and I think, to me, it says something about ghosts and how it's something that we can't see, just like the wind, but we can see it affect our surroundings. Um, and also, you know, we, we feel it, but we know it's there, but we can't necessarily point to it and say, look, it's there. <laughs> right. And in that also, I think that all of these, these etymological ties show the contradictions of the ghost. Mm -hmm. There's emotion, there's there's a surplus of emotion without a body displaying those emotions and acting upon them. There is a life force that's not tied to a living thing. There is breath, but there's not anything breathing it. Yeah. Um, And I guess, I mean, so as we talk about the features of ghosts, and this is going to be pretty quick because I think that if you have chosen to listen to this, you are probably roughly aware of the general cultural idea of what ghosts do. But one of those things is that they can, Im they can impact all 
of the senses. They are often tied to aromas, maybe the perfume that this dead person used to wear. They might make noise like banging or rapping or EVPs, as the the pseudoscience wants to make us believe. Um, you might feel it touch you. I don't know about any ghost tastes, but... <laughs> Maybe we'll find something. I would love to know if you have ever tasted a ghost or if you know of any stories about the taste of a ghost, please let us know. Drop us a line. Drop us a line. On the spirit phone. Yes. Give us a hint by ringing the bell. Something that I've noticed about ghosts and what we've been talking about um, is that Although we can sometimes see ghosts, um, it's usually really fleeting. Um, and although there is the potential for a full sensory experience, unlike something that's living, we don't get all of those senses at once, right? We, you get a smell or you get a feeling, something touches you. Um, you get a sense that something is near you, but you don't get to see, smell, hear, taste, and touch it all at once. And that really adds to the mystery and the impactful encounter. Right. And then there's also the fact that while they can do things that humans should do when they shouldn't be able to do them anymore, they also have things that humans can't do. They often can make things float in midair. They sometimes can possess still living people. They can make rooms cold for no reason i mean that's a mainstay of ghost hunting shows yeah um and then their appearance might change it might be the way they looked when they died it might be they might have um wounds or something relating to what killed them but they also might not there are animal ghosts um there are also ghosts uh, that are just specifically tied to a location and often only manifest through the the physical world around them, like poltergeists tossing objects, throwing stones, stacking chairs. Those are specific cultural references. It sounds like a lot of the things that you're talking about are particularly scary things to experience, right? I mean, I know that I personally... Um, Although intellectually I love mystery, when it comes to experiencing a sense, touch, smell that I can't explain, that usually frightens me. Right. It's like walking into a spider web. Yeah, exactly. And so I think part of what makes ghosts scary is that lack of explanation. But on the other hand, ghosts can be really comforting to some people, right? Um, there's this idea that if somebody you love dies, they could come back and communicate with you. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think about how many different emotions uh, people can connect to ghosts. Um, everything from total fear to comfort to hope um, really the entire, excuse me for the pun again, spectrum of, of emotions. Right. And a lot of the hope is often rooted in, again, that Christian experience because mm -hmm. you are seeing confirmation of your religious beliefs 
and the existence of a world hereafter. But I think that if we're going to talk about the other side, back to fear, mm -hmm. then I think that it's time that we start talking about monsters. Ah! <laughs> I would love to talk about monsters. Let's talk about monsters. So I'll give it a, just a short preface. Um, at university, I took a course that is called Monsters in the Dramatic Imagination with the incredible Michael Chemers. And that, uh, I, as I may have mentioned earlier, just completely flipped my world on its head. Um, because I don't know if most people are at all aware that, like, there is a whole realm of study devoted to horror and monsters and how those things operate. So in that course, we had one foundational text that was really the root of the work that we did whenever we were writing papers or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and this comes from Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, uh, his seven theses of monster culture. Are you ready? I am so ready. I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> All right. So let's get to thesis number one. Yeah? Okay. Thesis number one, the monster's body is a cultural body. Um, that is also really the foundation for this podcast. As we keep alluding to, we are not ghostbusters. We are not ghost hunters. If you see something strange in your neighborhood, don't call us. No. So the monster is a work of fiction. It is to be analyzed through tools of literary and sociological theory. That is what that thesis entails. Something that I wrote down um, from thesis one is this quote that the monster is an, quote, embodiment of a certain cultural moment, end quote. Right. You can't have a ghost talking through a Ouija board until you have a Ouija board. Yes. You can't have Samara appearing on a VHS unless VHSs have invented. And that's a very literal understanding of that. But... I think that as we go deeper into what specifically monsters are there to communicate, um, it might become clearer why monsters will have certain booms at certain times. I mean, I think that anybody listening to this will probably be aware of a certain, like, boom of zombie media when we get to about the aughts, the tens, mm -hmm. and there was a boom of vampires in the 90s or so. Mm -hmm. Um and the, 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 the giant radioactive creatures during the Cold War. Like, you can see where things are coming from in these cultural moments. This kind of reminds me of how some people interpret alien sightings as just part of the spectrum of seeing saints and seeing spirits. Have you heard about that? No, but I have seen that, that there's that artist that paints things like that. So I, I'm. it's not completely alien to uh, me. Ha, ha. Um, speaking of alien i'm jumping ahead a little bit but thesis two which is called the monster always escapes um my main note on my my page here is that i need to watch alien because i've never seen it and that i think is a disgrace yeah um but anyhow cultures produce monsters and monsters produce culture. Correct. In fact, <laughs> I quote, monstrous body is pure culture, end quote. 
So thesis two, the monster always escapes. As long as the cultural fear from which the monster stems persists, the monster will reappear in retellings, reimaginings, and sequels. Um, now obviously, when we get to the contemporary moment, we can see a little bit of a money-making reason for that. Mm. But there is also a reason that there's alien, aliens, etc. Why there's Child's Play 1, 2, 3, Bride of Chucky, Seed of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, Cult of Chucky, and now the TV show. And I think I missed one in that list. Um, but it means that the monster will continue resurfacing because we need it. We need to cope with this fear and that monster is a handy tool. It's a handy metaphor for communicating whatever our culture, our society, our civilization is anxious about. It's kind of like when you are really, really angry about something and you just keep pushing it down and you keep ignoring it and ignoring it. One day, this is, I, I'm going to make a reference that I don't have the right to make. One day, it's just going to burst out <laughs> of your stomach and it's going to be screaming and it's going to be nasty and it's going to run around and chase you and then they're going to make a sequel until you go to a therapist so <laughs> that's thesis too <laughs> okay Thesis number three, the monster is the harbinger of a category crisis. This might be my favorite one. I love this one too. Monsters defy binaries and challenge easy comprehension or categorization. Name a monster. The thing. Okay, the thing. So the thing, it defies the binary between man and beast. It appears in the dogs at the beginning of the movie, but then it also becomes people. It defines the binary between self and other. It can look like me. It can look like you. I don't know who is who. Mm -hmm. It defies the binary of living and dead. There are times when it looks like something that to us should no longer be living, like a, a severed head, but it's still walking around. Um, material and immaterial, we never know what specifically it looks like. Um, we could go on and on. Um, oh, I will bring into it because my one pet peeve with a lot of this horror criticism is that it often is so psychoanalytic in its origins that it really gets into those body metaphors, which can be very cissexist. They can get kind of transphobic. Yes. So the thing could be interpreted as d defying the binary between male and female. It is penetrator, but it is also penetrated, like when the person reaches their arm in and it bites them. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting that you bring that up because I think we can definitely read into negative associations with uh, breaking binaries, right? Because it, it is about our f cultural fears, right? Um, but I think this is why counterculture loves monsters so much. Because something I've noticed from being a fan of horror, a fan of the gothic, a fan of Halloween, um, is my fellow fans of these things often tend to be on the fringes of society in some way or another. And we, we find each other through, I, th I think, this desire to um, live on the edge of these binaries. And so I think, while it's very important to recognize 
how we are looking at the culture's greater fears about breaking binaries. I think it's also something, uh, there's something to be said about the way that horror fans own these monsters. And I think it has something to do with that. I also think it has something to do with thesis number four. I think you're right. (laughs) Thesis number four. Can I read this one? Yeah. The monster dwells at the gates of difference. And so my synopsis of that, because I love Cohen's writing. It is very verbose and it can be kind of high concept, even when it is really easy to boil down once you understand it. The monster represents the other. Now, the other can be the sociocultural other, the minority. It can also just be the not-self. Like, we're talking capital O other. Capital O other. Also, not capital O other. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that what you said really encapsulates that. Anything else I could say would delve into a lot of examples, but... Um, I mean, if, even if you think of words like demonize and vilify, when we talk about the ways that our, that our culture copes with those people that are being subjugated and, and being deemed subaltern, we turn them into a monster. We turn them into not us. Um, and we can see that so many different ways. One of the most uh compelling is often the monstrous feminine um and how many monsters that are also women the fact that they are monster is tied into the fact that they're a woman carrie getting her period is a very good example of this Mm -hmm. or uh ginger from ginger snaps turning into a werewolf when she gets her period (laughs) or even just the trope of the crying female ghost yeah yeah this emotional creature right and i mean another one i would want to bring up is if we're talking about the thing when was the thing made right before the aids crisis really hits and there is this idea of who is infected who is not and testing the blood becomes such a climactic moment in that film and then um i remember I was not old enough, but hearing stories of people who saw Interview with the Vampire, Mm -hmm. and you have these two men erotically drinking each other's blood, and that was Mm. freaky at the time. And also extremely compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And any any other group has probably either monsters that have been intended to represent them by the dominant culture, or... Monsters they have found to identify with because it can also be subversive. Um, But also, even if it may not have happened intentionally, there are always readings to be found. There are some really profound readings about Frankenstein's monster as a trans allegory, which, though there is evidence that Mary Shelley did know a trans person in her lifetime, probably was not intentional in her writing. Mm -hmm. Well, and I don't doubt that we're going to encounter these types of examples in future episodes yeah i actually find that the ghosts are one of the most difficult ones because when you move away from gender and certain examples of the racialized ghost yeah sometimes it can actually be difficult to locate 
if there is a minority at play with the ghost. And that's a thing I think we'll have to talk about. Yeah, well, you take the body out of the equation, and a lot of the things we use to judge people's actions or existence are removed, you know? Um, It's kind of hard to discriminate against the breath. Yeah. And I think that actually, that does lead into Thesis 5. Cohen was so canny with the way that he wrote these. They do flow. Uh, Thesis 5, the monster polices the borders of the possible. Tales of the monster exist to discourage unacceptable or taboo behaviors. So those can be existing in a group that you're not supposed to be in. They can also be things that are criminal or just frowned upon, or they can just be where um you're living or acting counterculturally yeah well i was going to tie it to what you were just saying about um how you can be mistreated when you don't have the body Mm -hmm. um how like Mm. that there's power in uh transcending the body perhaps or that you can get away with this with the deceased but you can't get away with it with the living. I see. Yeah. Like, it would be very rude to perform an exorcism <laughs> on someone who's coming to visit your house. That's called being evicted. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out real quick that, uh, and I know this is intentional, but thesis four, the gates of difference, and thesis five, the borders of the possible, um, these really focus in on the idea that monsters or in our case ghosts which we're considering a type of monster exist on the borders they're in between um they're at some sort of threshold thesis number six fear of the monster is really a kind of desire subjects can vicariously participate in the disruption of the social order through the monster and enjoying tales of the monster. So I think for me, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about how people who feel like outsiders in some way or feel like the culture is not serving them tend to be fans of scary stories, of horror, of the gothic. Um, But I think this also bleeds into the greater culture And for people who are not as open um, or, you know, out about their tendencies for the weird and the unusual, um, I think that this part of culture is an opportunity for them to have that moment to live vicariously through the the monster. Right. And also, I think that, and this is horrible other conversation but when you think about the enjoyment of true crime like people are enjoying these tales that are grisly and gory and there is a conversation to be had about the ways in which we consume those but it's not just because you want to protect yourself it's because there is something exciting about knowing about the horrible things that are happening and that is horror as a genre right Yeah, and I I think anything that we try to suppress is eventually going to surface in some type of way. Um, And oftentimes, 
stories are the safe place for us to mentally enact those things that we maybe try not to think about in our everyday lives. Yeah, and that is thesis number seven. The monster stands at the threshold. Dot, dot, dot. Of becoming. <laughs> Within the monster, we find information about the self. And we find information about the dominant culture. Um, when Doc Chemers covers this, he ends the lecture by playing Monster in the Mirror from Sesame Street. Wubba, 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 woo, woo, woo. Oh my goodness. I have not thought about wubba, 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 woo, woo, woo in many a year. <laughs> because we see in the mirror, this distorted funhouse mirror, ourself. Yeah, and this just makes me think of the phrase, as above, so below. Um, we could also say, you know, as without, so within. You know, we are in the culture that the monster is being created by. And to think that we could experience these stories or have emotions towards these stories without somehow participating within ourselves... Um, is absurd. Like we, we are definitely uh, involved in the creation of these monsters simply by experiencing the monsters. Um, and so to think that we can learn something about who we are and um, the place in which we live, the, the ideas that we are influenced by and that create our consciousness. Well, and also, it's the release of tension. It's ah. every society, no matter how stringent its rules are, has to have those places where you can break them. I mean, that's why Puritanism didn't particularly last very long and why you needed the witch trials as a way of acting out against that and why you have things like Bacchanalia, you have Mardi Gras, you have Halloween, you have Rocky Horror Picture Show, where you go from your strict, straight-laced society to a time when you can break those confines, when it is okay to transcend all of these boundaries, and then the next day you have to go back to the norm. Because if you continue you will rupture the society and people will question what is okay and what isn't. All of your rules will be shown to be arbitrary. And it's interesting that all of those examples, I don't know about Mardi Gras, but you dress up on Mardi Gras at least, um, in, or Carnival, but there is an aspect of the monstrous, whether those are the maenads tearing people from limb, limb from limb, the ghosts and the spirits that people dress up as on Halloween, or a sweet transvestite. <laughs> What you were saying, I think, was really astute. We need some way to sort of exercise the the monster from within. Um, and I think we need these cultural boundaries around it, or some people more than others need those cultural boundaries around it so that it doesn't feel like a total breakdown of identity, um, that, that you can play these roles or, or um, play within these worlds in a safe structure that is not going to actually question who you are, um, which 
is potentially problematic, but we can get to that in another right. episode. When we talk about these things existing within the monster, we are intentionally critiquing the culture from which the monster derives. Mm-hmm. All of the things that that culture is scared of and anxious about get wrapped up with this little bow, but it's obviously not working because the monster will continue returning. So I'd say that's a pretty good summary of the seven theses. Mm-hmm. You're so welcome. Um, to me, these really link to perceptions of Gothic literature. And so to end this episode, we need to talk about the Gothic. Um, this is, for me, what really ignited my love for ghosts. Um, and just like Quest took a class in college that completely changed everything, or at least maybe added fuel to the fire that was already there, right? Um, my little goth heart was completely set aflame by Dr. Sandra Stanley when I took her class on Gothic literature. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how Gothic theory is informing this podcast. Um, And let's start out with the origins of the Gothic. Well, I'd like to talk about your origins of the Gothic because I have an anecdote to share. Oh, I would love to to know. I remember that Uh (laughs) in... It might not have been second grade. It might have been third grade. You were the person who told me, like, who used the word goth for the first time to me. And you described it, I don't know, as something about, like, people who were obsessed with wearing black and death or something like that. And you were wearing, I believe, something kind of pseudo-medieval-y, as you sometimes did at the time. Like, not, like, period, but, you know, like a flowy 90s gown. with a zipper. And I also remember this is around the same time that you tried to convince me that you were a vampire. I forgot that I did this. (laughs) I actually, if I remember correctly, successfully convinced you that I was a vampire. I cannot recall. I would not be surprised. Yeah, I think think you thought it was true. Um, (laughs) So So Horace Walpole, huh? So, yeah, that guy. Um, what I learned from studying the Gothic is that nobody agrees with anybody, and uh, there's always a question to be created for the sake of more research. And so, although we are going to officially put on record that Horace Walpole originated the genre of the Gothic, um, because he was the first one to brand his book a gothic novel. Um, People have a lot of disagreements about not only what gothic means, but where gothic started. So I'm just going to say that. And any genre is always going to be hard to pin down. Genre is always a more useful label in its application than it is to actually pin down the, the or gothic. Right. So in 1765, Walpole published The Castle of Otranto, which is considered by most to be the very first gothic novel. And like I said earlier, this was the first novel to say, I am gothic in print, right? 
it, it literally said that, right? No, it, it was labeled a gothic novel. Um, and this is an example of what I would consider a very traditional European type of gothic. Um, it's based out of romantic literature, and that's romantic with a capital R. So things to do with um, big emotions, the supernatural, chivalry. Um, you can have dragon fights and um, just outrageous things occurring. And uh, to me, it's kind of like the, the superhero of this time period. Um, it would have been widely read. Uh, in fact, a lot of uptight men were concerned about this genre because a lot of women really enjoyed it. And of course, they dismissed it like the Jonas Brothers or something, you know, like this is trash literature. It's not real literature. It's just some, you know, pulp fiction crap that the ladies are into to, to get themselves all riled up. Um, and uh, so Walpole really had an influence on transforming the meaning of the word gothic um, with the popularity of this novel um, from grotesque or barbaric to something that is imaginative in a medieval manner. So you're taking this idea of something that used to mean uh, backwards and and uncultured and turning it into something that's alluring, exciting, um, and romantic. Right? right. The original Goths were barbarians that fought against Rome. Mm -hmm. And then around this period, Gothic architecture was reviled. It was not something people typically enjoyed. And then Horace Walpole built Strawberry House, which was his beautiful Gothic manor. Right. And so... As time goes on and as more people contribute to the conversation about the Gothic, we move away from just castles and the supernatural, although not too far from those things, um, and we start to think more about culture and ideas about past and present, self and other, and I think you can speak a little bit more to that, right? Yeah, so the... Gothic becomes popular in a time of rationalism, and it kind of occupies this non-binary niche where it is on one side influenced by the medieval, the romantic, and on the other side it's influenced by rationalism. It's often concerned with a conflict between the past and the present, which you can see within those two conflicting um, sides of its origins, um, between nostalgia and progress, between self and other. I'm going to quote uh, Hogel writing on the Gothic. He says that its bipolar nature encompasses both antiquated, once aristocratic, and largely Catholic worldviews and modes of discourse, on the one hand, and rising middle-class, usually Protestant alternatives, on the other. So it is monstrous in and of itself, which is part of why it gets latched onto by these 
minority groups that's been employed by so many different modes of critical theory, Marxist, feminist, queer, post-colonial, critical race theory. That is the real monster in the room. Am I right, ladies? Um, it's also very intertextual. It often, like, is predicated on conventions of the genre that have been established in something prior. Um, and then this is just from Wikipedia, but I thought it was a really good, just quick and dirty understanding of Gothic. Gothic fiction is characterized by an environment of fear, the threat of supernatural events, and the intrusion of the past upon the present. Which is just so ghostly. Yeah, it's very, very ghostly. Um, yeah, and I, I think this speaks to the uh, idea that scholarship has really adopted the gothic as a, a place for pretty much every critical lens um, which of course for me was very exciting as a student because I realized that I could gothicize absolutely anything um, but there is some some truth in that if you if you look at it as something that explores fear explores the threat of supernatural events explores the past um, intruding upon the present you can find that in almost any aspect of uh, human existence. So I think it will uh, be useful to us when we look into ghosts. So we have a couple more things to talk about. One is abjection, which I'm going to ask you to buckle your seatbelts for. Abjection can be really complex, and it's funny because it's one of those things that you, when you're reading the literature, you start out and you're with them. You get where they're coming from. It makes mm -hmm. sense. It might give you an aha moment. And then all of a sudden they just go and they are extending this metaphor so far. They are making these leaps about the way the human psyche works completely beyond, you know, psychiatry. It's just bewildering sometimes anytime as a, as a rule of thumb anytime a psychological lens is applied tread carefully um because another thing that i'm sure will come up on this podcast is that a lot of psychological readings of the gothic are rooted in freud yes. and freud is extremely problematic um although useful in useful ways. in in some cases and i i think um, I think that's enough of a disclaimer. Yeah. So the Latin root of abject means to throw away or to discard, throw away or down, to cast or push away or aside, to abandon, to waste. So at the heart of the theory of objection is that you encounter something that forces you to recognize that within life there exists death. And that presents a trauma to your psyche, so you throw it away. Um, that is so bastardized, but it's... It's helpful, though. And yeah. also, I don't know if we mentioned that this is from Julia Kristeva. Yes. Um, the, this is going back to Hogel. We seek to cast off the undercurrent in us that we are moving towards death from the moment of birth. 
the intermingling of what should be the ultimate opposites, life and death, causes this visceral reaction of dread, horror, and disgust. So again, we're in this place where binaries are breaking down and the human psyche doesn't know what to do about it. So maybe the best thing to do is just uh, spit it out. Blah. Right? Yeah, I don't want that. And um, often the abject comes up in discussion of bodily excretions and bodily leavings. So nail clippings, hair, vomit, blood, excretion. Things that are a part of you that suddenly become disgusting when they are no longer a part of you. And the ultimate object is the corpse, which is mm-hmm. exactly that. There's a whole genre of art called abject art. Be careful if you Google it. I adore abject art. Some of it is the coolest stuff, but also some of it is very not good to look at with your eyes. So, Kristeva's model of the abject largely concerns itself with the formation of the self in contrast to the other. Okay, I'm cool. that, that tracks for me. And it's often tied to the mirror stage in Lacan, which is his idea of when the baby finally sees itself in the mirror and realizes, I am not the same person as mommy. Mommy and me are different people. Because if your psychoanalysis isn't based on Freud, it's going to be based on Jung or Lacan, and they have their own problems. Mm -hmm. But Um, especially mommy problems. Yes. And so Kristeva casts the mother archetype as being particularly abject because, and this is where I can't follow her anymore, because she (laughs) conceives of pre-birth as being the same as death and we the trauma of the mirror stage makes us want to go back to being the same as mommy but that's ego death woof you know um i don't think i can get to ego death today maybe in future episodes but what i do know is it is useful to think about the abject in terms of something that is othering that could potentially be a part of you or maybe has been a part of you you see yourself in it but you also see something disgusting and i think when the soul leaves the body and becomes a ghost but it kind of reminds you of your little meat body that could be pretty abject and it forces you to encounter death just like Oh. All of these no bodily leavings. Yeah. Um, and which is also really interesting when you think about the ways... We'll get into ectoplasm in the next episode, but that's Tune not... Tune in next time to yeah. get into the ectoplasm. <laughs> that's not like diaphanous weird thing yeah. that ectoplasm becomes. It's like its own kind of new abject bodily function. I love it. So here's a quote from Richard Sykin uh, in Black Telephone, which just beautifully ties abjection to monster theory. Want to make a monster? Take the parts of yourself that make you uncomfortable, your weaknesses, bad thoughts, vanities, and hungers, and pretend they're across the room. It's too ugly to be human. It's too ugly to be you. So our last item before we go has to be the American Gothic. It's not only my number one true love when it comes to research, um, but it's also had a lot of impact on 
some of the things we're going to be talking about in future episodes. Um, and so American Gothic is the Gothic of the United States. Um, and it is particularly uh, focused upon regional issues, meaning it's not so much about castles and monarchs and, uh, you know, Gothic architecture, which we don't have very much of here in the United States. Um, it's more suited to the landscape and history of this place. Uh, you may have heard of Southern Gothic, which is a really, really popular literary genre. Um, but there are Gothics associated with all parts of the nation, um, especially coming out of some of the regional literature that was really popular in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. So American Gothic literature that you may be familiar with, I'm going to read a few authors. You may have had to read some of these in high school. And if you did, and if you hated it, go back and try again, because you may not have been the right age for it. So here we go. Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, Shirley Jackson, Cormac McCarthy, Anne Rice, Toni Morrison, and William Faulkner. That is just a few of the big names in this genre. Um, so American Gothic literary studies also overlap with Hollywood horror and contemporary film studies, which is another reason why I wanted to bring it up. Um, we're talking a lot about... Um, fears related to colonialism, fears related to the institution of slavery. Um, there's a lot of uh, queer studies that connect with American Gothic studies. You know, we, we have lots of issues around uh, gender and sexuality in the United States and lots of traumas here. Um, and so that comes up a lot. Um, and also, you know, with authors like Cormac McCarthy, we have the myth of the Old West, which is just full of trauma and um, also haunted spaces. So there's a lot going on with American Gothic. One of my favorite theorists uh, who have written about the American Gothic is Teresa Gadu. Teresa Gadu rejects the popular comment that America has no history, which I think now most people reject, but Believe it or not, we've had to argue for that. There was this idea that, you know, because we don't have thousands of years of castles and architecture, we don't have any um, physical evidence of history. And clearly, architecture is not the only uh, marker of having a culture. <laughs> and also architecture that is meant to last. Right, lasting architecture. It's like just because you can't still see it standing there doesn't mean that there were not thousands of years of really rich cultures on this land. Um, and so Gadu rejects that, says, yeah, of course, we have a history. Um, and actually, that history is uh, full of trauma. And um, Gothic is not a melodrama. It's not something... Um, over the top. It isn't a superhero movie. Um, it is deeply connected to culture. 
so it's like we've come full circle here, um, very similar to monster theory um, in the sense that we're looking at uh, the experiences of the Gothic as a cultural reflection. Um, so Gadu writes, Gothic stories are intimately connected to the culture that produces them. Um, Gadu argues that, quote, the Gothic serves as a primary means of speaking the unspeakable and disrupts the dream world of national myth with the nightmares of history, end quote. Um, she also writes that it, quote, unsettles the nation's cultural identity, end quote. Here we really have that idea of what we tried to erase or what the greater culture, I should say, because not everybody is trying to, um, but what the greater culture tried to erase is coming back to the surface, and how it surfaces is terrifying. It's monstrous. It's abject. Sca- it's abject. <laughs> and so I just wanted to share that because I think it uh, really informs where I'm coming from Those when I'm reading ghosts. Delicious quotes. Thank you. I mean, Teresa Gadu thanks right. you. Yeah. Um, so if you want to know more about American Gothic theory and what scholars are saying today, um, there are tons of great resources. One book that I highly recommend is Darkly by Layla Taylor. I think it's Layla. If it's Leela, I think it's Layla. You can uh, let me know. Um, but this book is really great because it not only talks about um, contemporary examples of American Gothic, but it also talks about the experience of being Black in America and being part of the Gothic subculture, um, which is its own thing entirely, um, but is definitely inspired by a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today. So as the sun begins to go down, I think it is time to wrap up this podcast. So if you want to find us, we are on Instagram as Ghosts Were People Too. Yep. If you'd like to give us any recommendations on ghost media to look into, that can be anything from film, theater, books, video games, rituals. Um, Email us at gwp number two pod at gmail.com that's gwp two pod at gmail.com thank you so much for joining us on this first episode um we're really really looking forward to making more of these if you want any more information of the sources that we were using in this episode, we thought it was a little too clunky to name them as we went, so we will be putting those in the show description. Yep. Yeah, we'll haunt you later. As it says on the Ouija board, goodbye. goodbye.